Good morning. If you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We'll begin there in John 19 verse 17. And as you turn there, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a sober question. Have you ever in person seen another person die? I don't mean a dead person like at a funeral. I mean, have you watched a person's life end before your face? Death is an awful thing. It's a shaking thing, a jarring thing. It's a ghastly and appalling thing. And if you see a person die, you will never forget it. Most of you know I work in a hospital in the daytime and not that long ago, there was a code called. A man had been with an employee and he had gone unconscious. They had sounded the alarm, all the people rushed in. He was laying on the bed when I got there, probably about 70 years old. He had long, curly gray hair. They had to cut his shirt off with the scissors. And they started doing CPR. There was a nurse, nurse practitioner, who was there with him and she was kneeling in his, in his bed and she started doing chest compressions. And if you've ever seen those, they're traumatic. They're kind of violent looking. It's unsettling. And the nurse took what's called an ambu bag, that mask with a balloon attached to it, and she started squeezing air into his lungs. And so they continued CPR. But his heart wasn't beating. He had no pulse, no life. And then slowly the skin at about his neck and going up towards his chin started to turn blue in little streaks, about 50 of them, the same color that you see in a box of crayons, that blue crayon. And then his ankles, they were uncovered, they started turning blue also. Paler, a darker kind of shade, like an ashy blue on his ankles. Death's really an awful sight. It's really appalling. Why then does the Christian faith have at the very center a death? And it's worse than that. It wasn't a natural death, like someone dying in a hospital of a disease. It was an execution, an intentional death. And it's worse than that. It was actually a death brought about by torture, not quick and clean, but prolonged and intentionally painful. It was gruesome and awful. And it's worse than that. The man dying at the very center of the Christian faith was an innocent man put to death in that awful way. Why? Maybe you're visiting with us this morning and you've thought, thought similar to that. Maybe you have been a Christian a long time and you've never considered that something truly tragic is at the center of your entire faith, your entire eternal hope. Why is it there? Well, that death is the subject of our sermon text for this morning. And I've prayed that by the time I sit down, you will know exactly why. 
There's a death at the center of the Bible, of the Christian faith, why people go on saying, Jesus died for my sins. Join with me as I read John chapter 19, starting in verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of God. Pray with me. Father, we do pray that you would show us the glory of a crucified Messiah. Make all of us bow low and exalt him. We pray in his name, amen. Our text takes place in Jerusalem. That's the place where God dwelt in Israel, a city on a mountain, the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. The temple was there, the worship was there, and right now it's Passover. We've mentioned in previous Sundays that there are hordes of people filling the city filling up the roads, creating traffic. There's feasting, there's a lot of sacrificing, the shedding of the blood of lambs. And all this was happening inside the walls of the city. But outside the walls, there's a very different scene unfolding. They're at a place called 
the text tells us Golgotha, which is a Hebrew word, and in Greek, it's the place of a skull, and in Latin, it's Calvaris, where we get our word Calvary. I think we're supposed to understand that it's a place shaped somewhat like the dome of a skull, a hill. And it's a dark place. This is not the first crucifixion at Golgotha. This is the spot where many men have met their maker. Lots of lives have been given, some of them for doing terrible things. Some of them, maybe, put to death though they were innocent. And on the hill, there are three crucified men. There's two on either side of Jesus in the middle. John doesn't really focus on the other men. He mentions them in passing. Jesus is in the middle. He's the point. And the way that the whole text today from verse 17 to 30 plays out is John, so to speak, puts Jesus on the cross in the story and then he narrates three other little dramas that happen at the same time as Jesus hangs. And then at the end he comes back, verse 28 to 30, back to Jesus for his death. The three little dramas are as follows. You first have Pilate and the priest and all the people who read the sign and their squabble. And then you have the soldiers who are putting Jesus to death and the way they divide his garments. And then you have what is in effect his family, his mother and I guess the other women and also the beloved disciple. The whole time above all the other dramas, Jesus hangs there. They happen at the same time. He sags, he suffers, lower and lower, inching closer and closer to death's door, the whole drama through. But John begins in verse 17 with Jesus not yet on the cross. It says there that they, that's the soldiers, took him. They took hold of him. This means that Pilate finally delivered him over to snuff out his life. He's already been beaten, whipped, slapped, had the, the crown of thorns pressed into his head. He's bloodied, he's bleeding, he's exhausted. And they take hold of him and they start the crucifixion process. He'd become like a lamb that was seized and led to the slaughter. But at the same time, John tells us that, look there in verse 17, he went out. He did it. It does not say they dragged him out while he tried to get away. It says he went out. And that introduces a major theme of John's entire gospel and a major theme of our sermon text for today. And that is that Jesus was a voluntary participant in his own execution. He was not forced to be crucified. He was an active participant. He did passively submit passive obedience, yes. But there are many things in our text, I'll point them out to you, where Jesus is more than passive. Jesus is active. Jesus is guiding as king, as Lord, the whole process along accomplishing the Father's will. He had said earlier in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. 
I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He's in charge. He's an active participant of his own crucifixion. In keeping with that theme, John tells us there that Jesus bore his own cross. He carried the horizontal beam. This was customary. Jesus wasn't the first one. Crucified men normally carried that beam. He was treated like all the other criminals deserving of death. And this would have been excruciating. It would have been exhausting. I told you he's already suffered a great deal before our text begins. They wouldn't have had smoothed, sanded, and finished wood like we're used to today. There would have been splinters in his lacerations. There would have been hard corners of wood pressing stiffly into the small bones in his shoulder blade. It would have been painful, and it would have been a walk. Maybe you haven't considered the way that he would have walked with that cross, carrying it. John doesn't tell us the details about how Jesus was unable to complete the whole walk and how Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to bear his cross. It's not John's point. John tells us that Jesus carried it. He emphasizes Christ's willing act of carrying the cross to his death. He bore it himself. He chose it. And as John progresses the narrative, the moment comes that all creation had been waiting for. Since before God called into being the first photon of light, this moment was coming. The moment that every guilty conscience, all the billions of guilty consciences that have, that moment that they've all longed for, that we've all self-medicated for, overcompensated for, it finally came. The end goal of all those millions of slaughtered lambs whose blood was poured out and sprinkled on the altar, the end goal of all of those lambs finally came. And like Moses, we heard last week, who lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness on that standard and everyone who looked at it would be healed, the moment of moments where he would be lifted up, it came. The Son of God, light from light, very God of very God, the one through whom all the worlds were made, the one in whom was life, was lifted up and they put nails through his hands and they put nails through his feet. More than innocent, innocent means did no wrong, Yes, innocent, but positively as overflowing with righteous, righteousness as you could ever be crucified. Can you see him there? Look at him. How do you imagine him? What's he thinking? What's going on in his heart? Certainly, there's a lot of grief, a lot of sorrow. But do you imagine him helpless, panicking, distraught, hopeless? 
I said before that John's emphasis in the Gospel of John is on the voluntary nature of Jesus' sacrificial death. Even in gory, horrific suffering. So imagine with me a father in our own day and age who has a two-year-old son who needs a kidney transplant to avoid death. There's no decision for the father. If it's a match, he's given the kidney. Case closed. Now imagine all the painful moments that that father has to go through, has to experience in giving a kidney to his son. Imagine when the needle goes through his skin to start an IV, he feels the pain. Or imagine when he wakes up from the surgery, he's achy, he's sore, he fingers the incision on his flanks where they've removed one of his kidneys. He comes to the sober awareness. His body is fundamentally changed forever. How do you imagine that father? Hopeless, helpless, distraught? Not in a million years. No way. That father's making a voluntary sacrifice. He knows what he's doing. He embraces every pain, every sting, every ache with eagerness because of his love for his son. And there hangs Jesus at Golgotha outside Jerusalem, bearing all the just condemnation that we have all deserved. Feeling in his body so acutely the pain from beatings and nails and thorns, the worst torture that could be devised by the Roman government, and the wrath of Almighty God on his head, and he is making a voluntary sacrifice. He embraces every pain, every sting, every ache with eagerness because of his love for you and because of his desire to do the will of his father. He was a voluntary sacrifice. I said before that John gives us this story of the crucified Christ with multiple simultaneous scenes. There are three. The first is a squabble between Pilate, the many people, and the priests. Pilate is something of the consummation of the evil foreign nations who rage against the Lord and against his Christ. Think of Egypt, think of the Canaanites, think of Babylon, think of Assyria, these peoples enslaved the people of God. They conquered them. They sent them into exile. They even destroyed their temple. But Pilate outstrips all of them. He exceeds them. He'll execute the Son of God himself, the true Israel. He'll tear down the true temple and he'll actually put to death the true eternal Davidic king of God's people. He did what none of the ungodly nations could do. But I said there's a squabble. Where is it? You remember from previous weeks, Pilate was actually trying to release Jesus. More than once, he said, I find no guilt in this man. John tells us explicitly, Pilate was trying to release him. And what happened? He was manipulated by the Jews. He was coerced. 
They strong-armed him. They threatened him with riot, political trouble, backlash, personal loss. So in one sense, he was forced to do something that he didn't want to do. So having done it, he's gonna get back at them. So he orders a notice be written. This was common, a notice be written and put above Jesus on his cross. It said in our text, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The point of that is that everybody could read it. And the text tells us that there's a large number of people. The hill, Golgotha, was close to the city, not far away, out in the distance somewhere. It was close, close enough that all the people somewhere going to and from on the roads were close enough that visually they could read the sign. The text tells us there that many people read the sign. A lot of people, particularly many Jews, and they would have felt a great deal of shame. They were owned by the Romans. Where is your God? You're a pitiful nation. You're under the thumb of Rome and there's nothing you can do about it. And Pilate can mock them openly with zero repercussions. How degrading, how humiliating I said that the city was full to the brim, overflowing with people for Passover. It would have given, perhaps, a different flavor to those Passover events. Is there a God who rules and reigns over us if we can be treated this way? Pilate took his revenge. And that brings us to the conflict, the squabble between Pilate and the priests. They know that the sign is a problem. They feel the insult to their pride and their dignity because of what Pilate has written. Look at your king. And so they propose, you need to change what you wrote. Don't say the king of the Jews. Say, he said I'm the king of the Jews. They want to save their own honor, spare themselves of shame while they're heaping shovels full of shame onto Jesus at the same time. Pilate He has no reason to change it now. There's no coercion, no power that they have. What I have written, I have written. Still, Jesus hangs there. The second drama is the soldiers, the men who crucified Jesus, humanly speaking, and the way that they portion out his last remaining possessions. The taking of his clothes exemplifies complete and utter abandonment, complete desolation. They took everything down to the last penny, even what he had on his, on his back. He was stripped bare of all dignity, hung out there, mocked, degraded, shamed, and these soldiers would have done this many times before. This was another nine to five day for these men. Their homes would have been filled with articles of clothing and possessions that they had taken from previous crucified men. Perks of being an executioner. But that's not all that's going on. John, John doesn't only show us the evil and depravity of these men. 
In fact, God shows us the depravity of these men to show us the sovereignty of God over it all. Every detail of this crucifixion is designed by God, foretold by God in specific and carried out by God. In the case of the divided clothing, the Old Testament passage in view is Psalm chapter 22, which many have called the cross psalm. David is the author of that psalm. There are many psalms like Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is quoted more frequently than most. It's a psalm of lament, a psalm of suffering. David was often on the run, often persecuted. He ran from Saul who would make something of a habit of hurling his spear at David in an attempt to kill him or he would chase him out through the wilderness and David knew he had done no wrong and so he'd pour out his heart in lament to God. They persecute me without cause. They divide my garments for my clothing. They cast lots. He's suffering. David pours his heart out. And the kingship of Jesus is a major theme of this chapter. That's what the whole controversy, at least on its surface, is about from the Jews to Pilate. He made himself out to be a king. You can't have two kings. There's Caesar only. Pilate, what are you gonna do about this? And now, you have Psalm 22, a David psalm, a Davidic kingship psalm. And Jesus steps in and fulfills and exceeds the role that David played as the eternal king. So we see in the actions of the soldiers, both their cruelty, their ungodliness, the way they intentionally compound Jesus' suffering, and the sovereignty of God in using their unwitting evil to accomplish the most wonderful thing that has ever been accomplished. But for now, still, Jesus hangs. The third little drama happening as he hangs is between Jesus and his mother, three other women, and the beloved disciple. They're all there, standing, the text says, by the cross, they're close by. And let's ask for a minute, what's the role of Jesus' mother, Mary, in the Gospel of John? She's not prominent. She shows up a few times here and there. The most significant time is in John chapter two, when they run out of wine, and she brings this issue to Jesus, giving him the nudge to do something. And what happens is that, I believe Jesus gives her a gentle correction, a respectful admonition. John, in John chapter two, wants you to know that there's no special pass to having eternal life. It's those who believe who can know God through Christ. There is no special pass for being a blood relative or anything else. It's John in which we find I am the way, Christ alone. And there's Mary watching her son, her maker, her Messiah, 
watching him die in obvious agony. And we could go on about Mary's subjective experience in this moment, it's easy enough to imagine. But we turn then to the beloved disciple who showed up now a few times. We've seen him reclining against Jesus at the Last Supper. We've seen him standing in Caiaphas' court, observing the proceedings of Jesus' sham trial. And now he's at the foot of the cross. This is the place where that disciple, his future has been leading all along. Now look again at the Savior before his mother, before the disciple. He's getting closer to death. He won't hang on much longer. And he sees his mother. Imagine how his heart would swell. He knows what she's going through. He is full of compassion for her. And he also sees the disciple whom he loves. And he does in that moment the impossible. His great incomprehensible, how does he love like that, heart goes out to her. It's self-forgetfulness to the highest degree. In your moments of suffering, tell me, do you quickly consider the welfare of others? Or do we become drawn in and self-absorbed? We do. And now think about him. He's under the most severe pain and torture that could be drawn up, and he cares about her, and he cares about the disciple. And he says, woman, behold your son. And he says, behold your mother. What love, what selflessness. Jesus saw to it that after his death, his mother would be well taken care of. In other words, he kept the fourth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. And that's the third little drama. It's at this point that John has put all the characters on the stage. It's crowded, everybody's there. Pilate, people, priests, soldiers, Mary, the three women, the beloved disciple, a lot of people. And above them all, Jesus hangs there. Turn your attention back to him. Look at verse 28. John tells us what Jesus knew, what he knew, what he was thinking, what he was aware of. It says that he knew that all things had already been accomplished. And this isn't the first time that John has said something just like this. Actually, in John 13, verse one, John said, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. And then again, a few lines down, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He knew where he was in redemption history. He knew in John 13 that he was at the end of his earthly ministry and that the cross was just around the corner. And then in John 18, you get something very similar. Verse four, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? That's the scene in Gethsemane right before he's actually seized and taken into custody. He knew. He knew what was happening. 
And now in our text, after hours on the cross, John tells us that Jesus knew that everything had already been accomplished. Death obviously excluded. Think for just a moment how he has fully carried out the will of his Father. He had left heaven's throne, he had completed the most improbable and impossible of missions. He's at the finish line. It's like a marathon runner who's going to win. He sees the ribbon, there's no one behind him. And he's still pushing it as hard as he can so he can put his chest and break that ribbon. That's how close Jesus is to the most arduous of races. He's accomplished it all. His body's failing, his lungs are filling with fluid, he's losing lots of blood, but he knows he's done it. He's the king who's conquered sin and death. He's gonna win his bride. So in keeping with his fulfilling the scripture, he says, I am thirsty. I thirst. This is what happens often at the end of earthly life. People get thirsty. He's also hanging there in the heat. He's also losing a great deal of blood. The flame of his life is only flickering. It's about to go out. So what do the soldiers do? They have a jar of sour wine. They put a sponge in there, squeeze it, fill it up, affix it to a reed of some sort, hold it up to Jesus, he sucks the wine, the vinegar, sour wine, into his mouth, his parched, dried out mouth, and swallows it down his dried out throat. And what you're imagining now is Psalm 69, verse 21, another suffering David psalm. They also gave me gall for my food, And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. What's going on with that? Evil men are the most creative and innovative at finding new ways to inflict pain and suffering. Food is supposed to give life. The men of Psalm 69 are giving David food that hurts, food that's cruel. Now what about Jesus? That sour wine, that vinegar that he drank, it wasn't poison, it was a drink that people commonly drank. The the lower socioeconomic class, like soldiers or the poor, would have used it as an inexpensive thirst quencher. It would have been kind of a staple. That's probably why it was there, beside the cross, available for the soldiers. Now think with me. Remember that crucifixion was designed to be painful and slow and long. One of the dark parts of the torture had to do with a block commonly put close to where your feet are from where you could push yourself up to get another breath in. And it's dark, it's cruel, because doing so is irresistible 
You have to breathe. The urge to breathe is overwhelming. And yet it prolongs the suffering. So you have the victim choosing voluntarily to prolong their own life and suffering. It's an excruciating choice. It's torture. And I think we're meant to understand the sour wine in the same way. One commentator said, the sour wine might have prolonged his life and therefore prolonged the pain. It would be unusual to think that these men who had been before now so cruel to Jesus, so ruthless, would now be giving him mercy. I don't think so. And so Jesus, like David, received vinegar for his thirst in his lowest moment, not for help though, but in cruelty. And then open your ears. He swallows it down and he utters those glorious words. It is finished. Only recorded in John's gospel, those words are an endless treasure trove. Those, those words will take a soul in despair and bring you to life. It is finished. What is it that's finished? What is finished? Jesus had finished the definitive, hyper-color display of the glory and character of God. You wanna see what God is like? Look at him on the cross. Everything that Jesus came to do, he had finished all the Father's assignment. His food was to do the will of the one who sent him. He had done all the Father's will. Jesus had finished everything required to undo, to reverse the effects of the curse from Genesis chapter three. Death, pain, suffering, and most importantly, separation from God. They were kicked out of the garden. Jesus had finished what was necessary to reverse it. He'd finished everything foreshadowed by the law of Moses, everything foretold by the prophets. In the most simple terms, Jesus had completed everything necessary for a sinful people who had no right to know our own maker because of our rebellion against him. Everything necessary to restore that fellowship, to bring us back to know our maker, to know the only God that there is, the one who designed you, who made you. He'd finished it. But it may be the case for you that you're having sins before God. Sounds strange, sounds foreign, sounds archaic, sounds hyper-religious, and you don't know what I mean. What is sin? Sin is anything and everything that goes against the nature of the God who made you. It's anything and everything that pushes against the purpose for which God designed you. Everything that chooses self and belittles God. Everything that makes self at the center and God to the side. Everything that chooses your own way, making much of yourself and making little of him. Every violation of your conscience 
and the law of God. All of it is sin. And perhaps some of these specific sins are attached to your conscience. Outbursts of anger with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your friends. You lost your temper. Maybe using your words carelessly or even vindictively to tear down, to tear down, pardon me, to wound rather than to build up. Embracing and affirming anything that's a deviation from the way God designs sexuality. Anything represented by the letters LGBTQ. Embracing and affirming any of it is sin before God. Or maybe you're greedy with your money. Maybe you misrepresent the way that you hold it, the way that you steward it, the purposes for which you accumulate it. It's the root of all sorts of evil. Maybe you have fantasies in your mind that you allow to linger. You let them make their home and you get some satisfaction from them. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you've pressured somebody else to have one. Maybe you're guilty of spreading gossip around like a deadly virus and you excuse your reasons for talking that way as you go along. Maybe you're a young person, a teenager, and you're torn between, on the one hand, obedience to your parents and your desire to please them, but on the other hand, your desire to experience the things that you think are the good things of the world, the good life out there. As soon as I'm away from home, I'll have freedom to live how I please. Maybe you've been unfaithful to your spouse. What skeletons do you have in your closet? There's a lot of them in this room. There has to be. You're not the only one who knows about them. God knows all of them. He'll never forget them. God will judge the whole world through a man. It's the man on the cross. And if you doubt what I say, the proof that God gives is that God raised that man from the dead. Hebrews says it was impossible for that man to be held in the power of death. There was no way one like him could stay dead. He raised him from the dead as he had promised, as the prophets had foretold. And God will judge the whole world with perfect laser precision through that man. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Sinners never get a pass before God. We all make ourselves think that we get a pass before God. We do not. Friends, those sins that I just named and many more are the sins that Jesus bore. They're the reason death was required. Those evils required death. This is why Jesus was crucified. Because God is just. 
and the evil things that God should hate, he does hate. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. He had taken that little list of sins I gave. It's nothing. It's a drop in a bucket. Endless oceans of sins just like that, and worse, he took them all on himself. Look at him. He's sufficient. Like the hymn writer says, sinner, will this not suffice? You can be free from your guilt. I don't mean only the emotion that you feel. I mean your guilt before an objective God whom you will see face to face, who never lets sin go. He never, ever, ever drops the ball. He never forgets. There's no glitches, but you can be free from guilt before him. You don't have to fear death and the judgment that God brings. The blood on your hands is not so permanently seeped in that Christ can't wash you clean. God knows your sin and he hates your sin and Jesus died for your sin and said, it is finished. There's nothing left to do. It's paid for. Justice, as the song says, has been satisfied. And now in our story comes the end. It's Jesus' last act of obedience. Death. Again, notice that John in verse 30 makes it clear that Jesus is the actor. Verse 30, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John had said before in John 13 that Jesus loved them to the end, like to the uttermost, all the way as deeply and practically as much as you could love another person, Jesus loved his people like that. And here we are. Jesus himself had said that there was no greater love that anybody has ever than for one to lay down his life for his friends. And here we are. This is that moment. Jesus is embracing with a heart full of love the black horror of death, something wrong, something broken that should not be in the world that God made. It's only there because of sin and Jesus is embracing it in obedience to his Father and with love for you. It's like he's been hung there on the cross, all vulnerable and exposed as a F5 tornado tears down on him, the wrath of God for three hours. And now here at the end, the quiet and the end have finally come. Let's go back to our question at the beginning. Why then does the Christian faith have at its center something so ghastly, something so tortuous as death? I hope it's crystal clear now to us all. His death was the result of God's righteous justice against your rebellion and mine. 
His death was his most brilliant act of obedience to his father in displaying God's glory in rescuing his people. I mean by that, when you see God save his people that way, you're meant to say, what a glorious God. That's why he died. So you could say, what a glorious God. His death was the greatest possible act of love. The innocent giving himself up. No strings attached for the guilty. Undeserving. The judge was judged. The lawgiver died as a lawbreaker. The one in whom all the fullness dwelt was emptied out. The word went silent. The light went dark. Life died, and it is finished. Let's pray. Father, what can we say? We can say, praise be to your name. We can say, thank you, Jesus. We can say, let all the peoples praise him. We can say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. We can say, may the lamb who was slain receive the praise he so rightfully deserves. It's in his name we praise you. Amen.